out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 show. This is David Eastall. As you know, we have a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, Sheila Chandra, who I spoke to recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, one-time member of a band called Monsoon. She's also played with people like Imagine Village and also with members of Blowzabella with the um, combo or the album under the title of Ancient Beatbox, he says confidently. Anyway, after a bit of casual chat with Sheila, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the music that we listened to when we were growing up. And this was her response. It's over to you, Sheila. Take it away. Well, I grew up in the inner city in London and um, we were not well off and I didn't really have money for records. So it was mostly the radio, which meant, I mean, I think like a lot of young young women, girls, um, you know, the singles charts was, it was more important than the albums seemed to be for, for teenage boys, certainly in that era. And um, so I'd have heard, and then my family, my mum was quite, relatively in those days would have been considered old um, she, I think she was 35 or older when she had me which was which was rarer in those days um, and um, you know she used to listen to stuff from the war and, and earlier so uh, and, and some stuff from the 50s but, but certainly not kind of the Beatles the Stones not you know it was it was very much pre that era yes. so, so I grew up with the ballad and I grew up with with crooners and um, at home and then the radio as well and um, in a way I grew up at a very bad time for vocalists because when I was 11 then you had punk and you know that was about anything but uh, virtuoso vocal yes you know, it's about screaming down a mic and being uh, extremely visceral and emotional but um, but not about uh, music as an abstract art really yes um, and I kind of retreated into soul singers. Yeah, I think um, Johnny Mathis was in the charts around that time. Some of the disco vocals were quite good. Uh, people like uh, Denise Williams and um, uh, what's her name, Randy um, Crawford. And um, uh, yeah, I kind of I, I, I went more towards those because they were they were vocals I could emulate, and they were interesting to me, and they were. Um, you know, they were easy and they were well placed within, you know, I could sense where the singer was forming the note and, and I could sense that that was going to be healthier for my voice than streaming down a mic, which yes. I didn't relate to anyway. So when you were very young, say, you know, like you, we, we sort of turned into the 70s, did you used to sort of, was Top of the Pops on a Thursday evening at 7.30 something that the, the, you found yourself watching at all or did you... Uh, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I remember seeing the Boomtown Rats and Shawaddy Waddy and, you know, um, but it wasn't something I tuned into religiously. Yes. 
Because because I sort of come from a, a working class family from the countryside, so that was um, most bizarre, really, looking back on it. Because we didn't have a record player until about seventy three, seventy four. Because I think when people, because my mum was seventeen when she had her first son, and probably nineteen when she had the second. There was a five year gap, and then there was me. And obviously, yes, you're right. Mothers normally sort of did it all by the age of twenty, didn't they? And then that was yes. it. And when they got married, which was the early late seventies, you know, they sold everything. You know, literally just had to sell everything including the record players and various records and then it was like save money literally to um to to yeah have any form of luxury because my mum if you know if we wanted christmas or a holiday they'd have to get part-time jobs you know cash in hand kind of jobs to get yeah. all that gig so it was well, kind that's of running close to the bone isn't it i mean really sort of earning literally enough to be able to pay it out again yeah so those seasonal jobs in the countryside were things like you know fruit picking or turkey plucking or you know all that it was that kind of childhood so it was kind of you know the record player didn't appear in our house at all until like 73 74 and then you know it was like a few country records but my I had an older brother who was seven years older who was in he was into prog rock so I suppose that was where I started to become curious but then top of the pops it was like you know sweet and Gary Glitter and um, you know all those T-Rex but it was luckily David Bowie was my first love so did the you mentioned glad, uh, punk, but to be honest, punk I was you know about twelve at the time. It completely passed me by. But um, and if you wanted to listen to a record at those stages, like someone said, oh, the Sex Pistols, like you couldn't just go and play it. Could you couldn't go and you'd have to buy it, and it was like two ninety nine or one ninety nine. There was no way you're going to buy a record on the off chance because you just couldn't say, oh, can I have a listen to that? It's like it was impossible in those days. You couldn't just stream it, could you? No, no. I mean, if it wasn't on the radio and you hadn't decided you liked it, or if it wasn't on top of the pops, then yeah. I mean, people from our background weren't going to take a risk. No, not that would take you weeks to save up money to buy a seven-inch single. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think I actually bought an album until I was a professional musician. I mean, I got given albums at the beginning of being a professional musician, but I don't think I actually went out and sort of handed over my own money yes. <laughs> because as a, as a child I just couldn't as a teenager I just couldn't afford to do it I know two two p a week 10 p a day or something I don't know it's quite a lot but then <laughs> but then you did also fear I mean were you a, I mean obviously artistically you did you sort of find you had a good voice I mean that was because a lot of people suddenly go oh yes I was in the choir at school or I you know, there were other people around me that, you know, I, I sort of saw singing or playing a guitar and I sort of picked it up. I just wondered if anything like that happened with you. Well, um, what most people don't realise is that girls' voices break. So uh, I had an obviously musical brain. My mum uh, told me that at the age of three, I'd sing Please Release Me by Ingelbert Humperdinck all the way through with all the correct words. So I obviously had a brain and I used to drive my mum mad by singing, knowing and singing every single jingle off the telly. Um, and that was a, an era for strong jingles. Do you remember in the mid 70s? Yes. An era for advertising for jingles. Um, and... Uh, so my, my brain was obviously musical, um, but then when I was 12, uh, it's not like when a, boy, a boy's voice breaks because you get that awkward transition period where sometimes they're high up in their register and sometimes they're low down and sometimes that break can happen in the middle of a word or a phrase. But for me, bam, it was there. Suddenly, one day I opened my... It was literally just one day I opened my mouth to sing a song, to actually in, a, in singing class, to demonstrate 
for uh, some of my classmates because I knew the song and they didn't. So I was just going to sing it so that they could hear how the words, uh, the words in front of them, how the words fit the melody. And um, fitted, sorry, with the melody. And it was there. There was this sound that I had never heard before. Wow. Did, uh, pe- it, did people go, wow, you, you've got an amazing vocal? Uh I was very, I was a very quiet kid. I don't think I was particularly popular. I was at a theatre arts school, not actually because of the singing. I mean, I'll explain that in a, in a sec. But um, I was an introvert in a sea of extroverts. So I, I think one or two people sort of vaguely whispered that they thought it sounded good. Um, and the teacher who was taking the lesson did, um, because he'd never heard me sound like that either. Um, but it wasn't. You know, it was it was just an internal revelation. It was partly the way that the vibrations felt going through my body as well. Suddenly, what I talked about before, knowing when a voice is well placed, you start to you know ring like a cello, um, because all the vibrations could and should and do go through you. Yes. Um, and you and you ring like a nicely tinged you know glass of water when. Um, you know, when there's nothing, you're not hanging on anywhere and you're not dampening the sound. But the reason I was at a theatre arts school was because it was the only private school for miles and I'd been so lazy at primary school. The only thing I was interested in was this sort of little part-time club where we did ballet and tap and um, and uh, it was the only thing that interested me. And so um, my mother sent me to theatre arts school as a bribe. But if I would do the... The academic work in the afternoon, I get to do the singing and dancing in the morning. And wow. And so it was before I ever thought that I had a voice and that I'd have a career in music. So so suddenly acting from being an introvert to suddenly performing. And then I didn't realise this until quite recently, you know, because there wasn't, there was three channels, weren't there? There was like, <laughs> so there, was, there, weren't, there weren't a lot of choice. So frankly, we probably saw a lot of the same things. Um, yes, Grange Hill. It was, it was that moment, wasn't it? Your Grange Hill moment, which was huge for us because there wasn't like much else to choose from, wasn't there? Was there? Well, I don't know if you remember, but prior to Grange Hill, which was, it was written by Phil Redmond, who wrote Brookside after that, and it was very gritty. Um, I don't know if you remember, but prior to that, we had Billy Bunter and Edith Blyton. We basically had stories about posh kids going to boarding school. And this was what all the working class kids were supposed to be entertained by in terms of stories of school life. Yes. And the thing about Grange Hill was it came along and it was real. You know, these were real working class kids who shopped, lifted sweets and you know, were dyslexic and got into trouble and beat people up in the playground. And, I mean, this was completely unheard of. And at the time, I remember friends of mine, their parents banned them from watching it. I mean, it was, I think their parents were more shocked about what was actually normal to their kids. Yes. Because because we'd had this this miasma of the uh, the upper-class boarding school kid Yes, there was also Tom Bryan's school days, wasn't there? I think somewhere down the line as well. But. Yeah, by Mr. Chips. All those, they're all terribly upper class and um, private school and elite. Yes, this is they, true, they, actually. 
girls going to Jim Carners or, you know, playing lacrosse and <laughs> Mallory Towers and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I read all those books or a lot of them and, and enjoyed them. But yes. the thing about the cold brace of bracing bucket of water that was Grange Hill was the fact that it was people like us. I know, with names called Trisha Yates. Was it Trisha Yates? Trisha Yates and Kathy. Tucker. And Ian Tucker and... It's quite frightening because that music is so ensconced in my brain, DNA, isn't it? That kind of, all those images. So how long were you in Grange Hill for? Only a couple of series, only a couple of years. Did you love it? Um, to be honest, no, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, because that was a, it was a theatre arts school, we had uh, an agency, a child sort of talent agency attached to the school and... Um, you got sent on auditions, and I was I was truly truly dreadful at auditions, and um, I'd been on quite a few by the time the BBC producers came around and were looking to kind of cast parts on mass because they obviously had lots of kids' roles to to fill, and there not being many Asian uh, children at schools, uh, theatre arts school, there was only one other Asian girl, and. Um, she completely fluffed her lines. And I was so convinced I wasn't going to get anywhere because I was terrible at auditions that I sort of nudged her under the table and generally larked about and was flabbergasted when I got the part. You got the part for two suits. You were a child star. That was amazing. Well, I mean, <laughs> it was a very minor character. I didn't have that many lines. But I think I was pretty wooden. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a great actress. It's not my craft. But... no. But it's it, was, quite... it was inconceivable that having landed a part that you would say no, having the agents having got you, the agency having got you this part. So, uh, again, I was an introvert and a sea of even more extreme extroverts, because if you, if you thought that the intake of theatre arts school was extroverted, if you then take the cream of those people who are sort of extroverted enough to want to be on a kids show, you kind of get this quite extreme. I mean, it was very entertaining. And... Um, you know, everybody was nice to me, but it was just quite, I, I found it quite a strain to be around yes. so extreme extroverts all day. It must be very, at least you did probably didn't have the parent thing that you'd probably get now where people were like, that's it, you're going to be there. I can just see money signs. I suppose in those days it's like, okay, do that for a bit and then, I don't know, get a job. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I suppose parent, parents now would be, I mean, I know, you know, friends who are parents and they're very keen you know I think god you Saturdays they seem to be taking their kids to all these things I'm, I often wonder if the kids are really that interested where it probably wasn't quite that blatant you know back I in. think we, we in the 70s had the benefit of boredom <laughs> you know just as those great Victorian inventors and naturalists had the benefit of boredom where yes. you know, if you were if you're rich enough all the household tasks were taken care of and you sit in your library and drink port or brandy or whatever and then after a while I suppose you had to get up and do something so you you got up and categorized huge you know yes. categories of insects or butterflies or, or something whatever. yes so as we, as we tracked into the 80s my favorite decade though I <laughs> because 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 a lot of people you know like during that period which is kind of the early 80s you know, we'd had Thatcher in 79 and had it for the rest of the decade. And there was a huge amount of unemployment. So leaving school and being unemployed wasn't like a big stigma. And in fact, I remember it was almost like, I don't know, you know, it was almost like the thing that a lot of people just did. And, and you know, I don't know. There, was, there wasn't there was any stigma to being unemployed in those days, really. And then 
a lot of the bands I've interviewed, you know, there was that kind of, there was unemployment, there was job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, you know, be a, be a year sort of signing on this scheme, don't get hassled, but then you can write down anything you want. By the press. I mean, we weren't being hounded and, and, and uh, yeah, vilified by a right-wing press who were running to a government agenda, which is basically about cutting benefits and, and allowing employers to get away with cutting wages. Yes. It's, that was the big difference. I mean, although it was the bad, apparently the bad old seventies, and we yeah we had strikes and we had three day weeks and we had we had power cuts and all, I remember all that as a kid. I mean, it didn't bother me because I was too little to really. It, it didn't inconvenience me in, in the sense that it would have you know anyone trying to run a household. But but there was an attitude among people that that was still extant after the sixties. That was really about understanding the value of of labour and of human dignity and that was still around wasn't it in the yes early. well I realized I realized that then there were there were kind of lots of safety nets that people didn't drop you know and you could happily kind of drop and not realize you're going to end up on the street in a year's time you could sort of do it as almost a career move and then realize you'd you know what I mean it wasn't it wasn't that scary but at the time it probably felt a little bit scary but now I would be terrified actually that there isn't all those sort of safety nets particularly that could catch you and it's all a bit random but a lot of the bad a lot of people who formed bands I mean this is a bit of a simplistic thing but it's a great theory. Um, but, you know, so 83 to 87, you know, that kind of indie pop explosion happened. We'd had punk, then we had the post-punk. Then there was that kind of the chart sounds with Trevor Horn and that kind of clean production, you know, new romantic stuff. Um, so there was a lot of those kind of bands just getting together and creating something. And in those days, you had those gatekeepers, like you had the music press, you had John Peel, and you got on one of those platforms and then you sort of suddenly went, oh, blimey, lots of people know who I am. And also every town, I say every town, lots of towns had little alternative venues, didn't they? So you could sort of suddenly find yourself kind of being sort of playing anywhere in the country, at a little art centre like Norwich or Bristol, Leeds, Glasgow. Everybody seemed to have one. So what was your the development of you with Monsoon in that kind of early 80s kind of phase? Well, I kind of did it backwards. I mean, most people, when you think about bands like ABC coming out of Sheffield and so on, you're right. People, people kind of built up that sort of following in their own in their own town, were picked up on by curators like like John Peel, and then suddenly reached a, a wider audience. But with Monsoon, um, uh, Steve Coe, who formed Monsoon, um, was living next door to an Asian family and heard their um, Hindi film music, which happened to be from the golden era of the early 60s, which was a fantastic time for uh, um, you know, Bollywood music, for, for Hindi, Hindi film music, because it was drawing on a lot of the classical and folk traditions. So it was, it was, it was in structural terms, it was really quite, and the melodies were gorgeous. And he became completely... Um, well, he was attracted by this sound and by the melodies, and he found himself writing fusion music at a time when, if you've got to remember, synths were that technology had just exploded. Yes. And so it, it was all a very synthetic electronic sound. And what he was interested in were these very organic sounds that really were the beginning of what we would now call the world music genre. Um, but um, that didn't put him off. So he's writing this stuff, and he decided to form a band, um, an Asian fusion band, and was looking for a singer. And because I, you know, said agency at the theatre arts school had, had got me this um, audition at Hansa Records, they just this was when I this was in '79 when I was 14, 
Um, Steve was writing this stuff in 1980, 81, but in 79, so prior to him writing this, I had done this audition at Hanson Records because they had just had, they'd have masses uh, hits with Boney M. And they were looking to put together what would have actually been a, a sort of early prototype boy-girl band because in those days you didn't tend to get people between well in their early teens or mid-teens you know musicians were generally much older uh, and this was definitely going to be a put together band and they were looking for, for for people in that age group and so I went and auditioned nothing came of that project but as luck would have it my photo was on file and the one of the demo tapes that I made for them was lying in a cardboard box and uh, Steve Coe had connections that Hans said, I think he worked for them, or done demos for them before, knew the receptionist well and said, I'm looking for a singer. What have you got? You know, who's in your, who's in the reject cardboard box? <laughs> and uh, uh, he says, he said that he was just playing through all the tapes and he heard my voice and went, this is the voice of Monsoon. And he took the tape to the desk and said, can you pull the, the is there a photo of this singer? And the uh, receptionist obligingly pulled out the photo and he could not believe that I was Asian. And it was an absolute sign. Right. Crikey O'Reilly. And the reason he couldn't believe I was Asian was because I was asked to sing this song in a Jamaican accent. So there's no way he could have known I was Asian. Yes. Wow. And, and did it all... By then, it sounds like the stars had lined up, hadn't it? Things were, things were flowing quite smoothly here. Yeah, um, they did all sort of line up, and surprisingly fast. We weren't. We did one live concert, but we weren't a live band. We recorded um, a four-track EP, which had a very early version of Absalonely on it, and um, this was in August, released in August of '81. And basically, Steve used that as a as a demo to take around all the record companies, and we were turned down by every single one, except that. Um, uh, Phonogram had signed um, uh, 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 they signed a label called the Mobile Suit Corporation, which was um, uh, this this guy called David Claridge, who was who was later behind Roland Rat actually. He was the he, he was the the guy who, who did Roland Rat, but at that time he was working with uh, bands from Japan, and they were they sort of wanted to have a Far Eastern imprint label within Phonogram, and then. The A&R guy who was looking after that heard the monsooning pee and thought, oh, well, that will fit with that. Right. It's kind of Aladdin syndrome, isn't it? I mean, when you go to when you go to the pantomime Aladdin, some elements are Chinese and some elements are Middle Eastern. They don't really, I mean, they're thousands of miles apart. They don't really go together. But, but that is kind of what happened with this label. <laughs> and, uh, I don't care. <laughs> and then, um, so... Uh, this guy, David Bates, um, he sacrificed his entire year's demo budget to send us to Rockfield. And we came back, we spent it all on Eversolonely. We didn't even have a B-side. Wow, Rockfield. And this is the famous studio, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The famous one that there's just been a BBC, BBC <laughs> documentary on it in Wales, yeah, in Monmouthshire. Everybody's been there. God, you must have, that must have been like you were 15 in this studio with this kind of sudden, like, fast track to kind of pop stardom. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't play the indie clubs, did you? You didn't, you didn't do the John Peel session. You didn't struggle up and down the, in a white, in a van going up and the down. The thing is, I was a 
16-year-old Asian girl, I wouldn't have been allowed to do those things. No. If, if it had happened any other way, it would have had to have been either yes. a male singer that was Asian um, or, um, or a white singer, I expect. Yes. Or, or, I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't have been, I don't think it could have been an Asian woman. Yes. So how long did you spend at Rockfields you, 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 yourself? I think um, the whole band were there to, for, I only came up for the last couple of days to do over Salome. They were there for a week. Um, <clears throat> but there are a lot of acoustic tracks on um, Ever Salome. I think there are 48 tracks. So, um, <coughs> sorry. Um, and then we were there to do the second single, Shakti, for a week, I think. And then we were there for two, three or four weeks to do. Um, the album, but I wasn't there for all that time. I was off doing um, promo, basically. Yes, and then so so how does because 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 uh, most bands have a sort of five year narrative, and this is the other sort of simpler simple way of looking at it. You know, they get together, they have like twelve months kind of rehearsing, faffing about. You know, they make a single, John Peel plays it, then he gets the sort of like the session, the album. You know, they do the tour in business. The second album, things aren't going terribly well. And then it's like, oh, dear, it's nearly all over. But your your story is completely different with Monsoon, isn't it? It's not. It doesn't have that kind of easy, easy to digest narrative. Well, it doesn't. And I think in a way, it, come, it sort of, it came out of the fact that, you know, what was up and coming was the idea that you didn't have to have an album. You didn't even have to play live. It was the era of video. It was... It was visage fade to grey. It was all that sort of stuff. Oh, God, and, yes. And I'd the, the model was changing. And, yes. and people were willing to take something on that hadn't come through the traditional route, besides which it sounded like nothing else. It did sound like nothing else. It got. It it, was, it, I think it was one of the first singles to get three records of the weeks from, from the music press simultaneously because it just was like nothing on earth. Yes. Because we'd sort of by then, there'd been the indie, the indie world of people like Liz Fraser had started to come along, with the Copto Twins and Dead Can Dance, and there was uh, various other things, from um, yes, Dissidenten, which was a band that John Peel played a lot as well from Germany, who who brought in sort of. Were they in the eighties though? I mean, I, I, thought, I thought they were more mid eighties. Probably say? yes, I would say they were probably eighty five. You know, I think the Copto Twins were probably eighty three, eighty four. Dissidentum were probably 86, 85, 86 from yeah. they had that sort of north North African vibe to them. And um and then there was all that kind of the kind of the world music kind of explosion with people like the Bundu Boys and the Four Brothers and yeah. Yes, Thomas McFumo and the Black Sun Limited, which we all loved. And because everything that John Peel played, I was like, oh yeah, that's amazing. I must go and see that. And then there was all the kind of roots reggae stuff that was coming out with I mean, that had happened in the 70s, but then there was Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang. So, you know, it was kind of a very exciting time, the 80s. It had that whole, wow, where do you sort of go to next? As well as, you know, you had those three singers like Tracy Chapman, Susan Vega, Michelle Schock. You know, so I sort of, you know, like you were saying in the 70s, there weren't a lot of um, kind of women singing role models. Suddenly the 80s had that, oh... It, you know, it was it was kind of things had really opened out, hadn't it, during that time? But you you were still yeah, I think you, you had access to a, a, a huge range of music suddenly. Yes, uh, yeah, it was it was a great time to be a serious uh, music fan. Yes, but you then, had lots of specialist press and specialist radio and beginning at that point as well. Oh, you had Echo. We had Echoes, didn't we, as well? Yeah. 
So it was all go as well as, I mean, and those gatekeepers, you know, those, you know, there was like Record Mirror, NME Sounds, yeah, Melody Maker. So it was kind of, you know, there was kind of, you got one of them and it's like, bingo. Um, so, but then Monsoon finishes. Did How did that sort of, how did the narrative of that play out? Well, um, I think the thing that we understand better in this century than we did back then is that um, it's the whole sort of uh, trying culture on as a costume kind of thing. And I think for our record company, that's what we were in a way. And I think they thought we could we could take that costume off easily without any problems. So when the second single wasn't as big a hit as the as ever so lonely, um, they started. Um, <clears throat> Well, first of all, they forced our hand on the third single, which should have been Wings of the Dawn, but uh, we'd recorded as a as a sort of concession to them because they wanted to release the album in America, and they said, well, you need to record a cover because that's the only way you're going to get through because you're not a live band. So we recorded Tomorrow Never Knows, and the next thing we knew, Tomorrow Never Knows was the third single, and when we objected, they threw the contract at us. Um, which was, you know, it was, it was not a brilliant contract. And um, they were pressuring us not to be so Indian. And it was, that's kind of, you know, that's why we were formed. It's kind <laughs> of, you know, uh, it's asking us not to be who we are. But for them, um, I think the Indianness was, as I say, more like a costume which they thought we could take off. Right. Um, and, it, and actually, it really, really wasn't. So Mons, we we um, we disbanded in protest. I mean, basically, we we the album we didn't launch the album. It was it was before the album had been launched. The third single hadn't done well, and and uh, we could see where it was all going. And yeah. uh, and so we disbanded, which was kind of the only way to get out of the contract. Blimey, that was quite drastic. That was that was the only way. To, that was so eighties, and it we were very. We're very militant in those days. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite uncompromising, yes. It was just like, that's it. Yeah. I mean, and... I don't think I knew what I was passing up. <laughs> I think I did and I didn't. I mean, um, I mean, Monsoon, in terms of Asian fusion, hadn't been my vision particularly. I was interested in all these soul singers and things like that. And part of me realised that if I stuck with phonogram and said, okay, I'm going to go more towards soul. You can market me in that way as a solo artist. And they probably would have said yes. And I think, I don't think I'd have been particularly successful because I don't think it was particularly a distinctive soul singer. I would have done a competent job, but I don't suppose I'd have been great. Mm. And, um, but the thing is that they treated us so badly. It was just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be around them. So there was no way I was going to say, okay, well, I'm going to try and do what you want. Yeah, it's interesting because we, we had Sade with um, her amazing debut album, Time in Life. And then there was other bands as well. Like there was another one from London called Working Week. You were fantastic. And then in America, you had Anita Baker, didn't you? So there was that kind of whole soul scene that was kind of developing as well. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and Working Week just never quite managed to sort of get off the ground like Sade did. Simon Emerson in that. Pardon? Wasn't Simon Emerson in Working Week? Yes, Simon So, Emerson. I mean, there's a connection there with the Imagined Village, you know, in the middle of the noughties there for me. So. Yes, I did an interview with Simon quite recently. It's a bit confusing because he, he's got two surnames, hasn't he? I wish he didn't do that. 
He was <laughs> <laughs> called Simon Booth, I think, didn't he? And, and then he became Simon Emerson. So. Yeah, and then the Afro-Celt sound system. I think that's the one, isn't it? Yeah. I get slightly confused, I shouldn't do, but there's Dreadstone as well, and they were like, yeah, the, the, the same audience, I think, were with everybody, and with age, you know, I just get a bit kind of like, oh, yes, right, it's a different band, isn't it? You were in that band, not that band. So then as, as the 80s progressed, and, and obviously we had sort of the real world record label, and, you know, there was Graceland with Paul Simon, did you, and you, you sort of got into your 20s, did you suddenly start to sort of also branch out musically as well, you know, like being... You know, because obviously you had been this kind of teen star virtually, weren't you? You did your 99 Red Balloons moment straight away there. And then, you, <laughs> and then you know, suddenly you think, oh, what happened? So, yeah, did you have a what do I do next sort of thing? Well, the contrast between 1982 and 1983 for me was absolutely huge. I mean, the single version of Ever Slowly was recorded in December 81. It was a massive hit in April of 82. By November 82, the band had disbanded. So it's this very, very fast timeline. And then I was left thinking, well, what do I want to do? And kind of as a reaction to everything that happened with Phonogram, I thought, well, um, I don't, I want to pursue my own musical direction. I don't want to be pushed around by a record company. So the idea really was that I would kind of cash in my fame chips, use the fact that I'd had a hit to open doors for me in the industry, make it possible for me to go back to the little indie pop label, which had put out the original Monsoon EP, and make four experimental albums within two years. So my first four solo albums I made between the age of, um, well, would I have been, yeah, 17 and 20. And uh, they were made quite fast, and they were they were extremely experimental, no singles, and um, just put out on export and through independent, you know, rough trade type distribution. And then at twenty, I retired for five years. I took a sabbatical. Yes. I kind of I, that era that you're fond of, the sort of a, a sort of mid late eighties. Actually, in a way, I kind of missed. That. I watched it from afar. Yes. But I was listening to lots of interesting stuff, but I, but I kind of, in terms of being active, I didn't get back till 1990. No, with, the, with, the, with your compilation, or not compilation, your record, Roots and Wings, which seemed to be like da-da-da. So did you spend that time, the last five years, kind of regrouping what you were going to do next? Did you have a, a plan? Did you feel like, this is it, this is what I'm doing next? Well, between 83 and 85, I was not just making four experimental albums. I was also learning how to be an artist from scratch because I hadn't done the, the live gigging thing and I hadn't um, been around lots of other musicians. I, I became a writer at, at, with my second solo album at, at age 19. So I was exhausted, basically. Yes. And I really needed, uh, a, I was exhausted, exhausted creatively as well as, physically and I just really needed a, a kind of gestational gap and yes I did uh, pretty soon into the sabbatical start working on my skills the skills that had been neglected the kind of musical exploration that I hadn't had the time to do whilst I was busy making these albums I and mean, it's great it's a great training ground to have to make well, to, to decide you're going to make four albums in two years because you're kind of forced to commit and you're forced to experiment. But there is also 
that need to go and spend a bit more time around it and build your skills as well. Yes, and it's uh, and it's nothing like sort of building a bit of mystique. I mean, did you as a person doing that sort of okay the latter half of the eighties? Did you as a person start to explore other sides of your life? You know the. I mean, like a lot of people. I remember the 80s, okay, I have to confess, I was a bit of a hippie at times. And there, there was a sort of a quite a new agey sort of element that sort of crept into my life, especially into the 90s. You know, there was, you know, there was a lot of people trying to explore any spiritual path. You know, there were so many people, you know, and luckily, you know, I didn't get too carried away. But there was kind of the people that I was hanging out with. You know, it was definitely that kind of, I mean, it's such a cliche now looking back on it, but... You know, there was a lot of people doing, you know, everyone was smudging each other with these kind of North American Indian rituals seemed to be a big thing. Sweat lodges, going to India, having a guru, all that, you know, I mean, it was like crystals, homeopathy, herbs, you know, doing the five rhythms dance. Yeah, this is also the roots of the, of the modern day environmental movement. Yes. I think there was this huge backlash against the conspicuous and, and, and quite sort of in your face and... Um, tasteless consumption of the yuppies you know the rise of canary wolf and that people who who took delight in kind of sort of slapping you in the face with their, their watch of money yes well absolutely but i think for anybody sensitive or thoughtful there was an, a, a visceral emotional reaction to that that made you want to run in the other direction yes i know and that was like was 87 we had the crash and we had the hurricane in this area so there was kind of quite a lot going on during that period but then again you know with a turning of a decade things feel quite different I mean I have to say this decade has been very weird but (laughs) 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 this one's really up the game hasn't it you know Jesus um but yeah so so then you sort of you you sort of like because Peter Gabriel's real world you know label was huge and also this was was it around the you know as I mentioned earlier, the Blozabella connection, you, you suddenly appeared again on, on that sort of single that they did. Because mm-hmm. Blozabella had, had sort of, in the 70s, completely different lineup apparently. I know quite a lot about Blozabella, actually. Um, they used to go to all the hippie fairs and festivals that used to happen yeah. in East Anglia, you know, and they, they you know, Kayleys were a really big thing with people who couldn't dance cause, or even had much direction, <laughs> even knew their left and right, you know. It was kind of a sham, isn't it, the Kaylee, when you watch it or take part. People just have no idea what Stripping the Willow is all about. And um, <laughs> so it's, it's all great fun. And then those guys, Nigel, who's the hurdy-gurdy, and... Paul, who plays all those instruments, they decide they're going to sort of brush off their hippie blows a bella and they, they form ancient heartbeat, don't they? Ancient beatbox, yeah. I, I always get that wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> with a, quite a new sound, but with the blows a bella sound. So how did you sort of stumble into their world? Because that was the nine that was roughly the nineties, wasn't it? That was actually eighty-nine. Yes. 8990 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, let's not go there. But um, <laughs> uh, I had uh, Paul uh, Paul James and Cliff Stapleton, who I think was playing with Rosabella at the time in 82, came and came and played on the, the Monsoon album down at Rockfield. And then we'd stayed in touch. And as part of my um, vocal explorations, I discovered British folk partly through um paul james because he said well if you're interested in accomplished singers have you heard june table have you heard maddie Pryor?" you know and that was actually a huge influence on my 
technique in the in the mid to late 80s but anyway they were forming ancient beatbox and Paul said will you come and do a lead vocal for us and or a couple of lead vocals for us and um, I don't think I'd have said yes to anybody else I mean it sort of winkled me out of my um, sabbatical you know hibernation and um, and I came and I did um, a vocal for a what what uh, came to be known as raining and they liked it so much they decided to make it a single so that's how that happened really and apparently you've got the 12 inch then i have got the 12 inch which i still <laughs> i think i probably got rid of the record the album because there was like actually that's the only record on it on the track on it it's worth keeping when you're sort of having to clear out decluttering which is important um. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing was they were deliberately picking up on people like the pet shop boys and that sort of very electronic thing and they and they translated that into the sort of very um almost robotic beats of breton dance and there was a real basis of a marriage there which was really interesting i think i thought i mean it wasn't just glued together like a a bad jam sandwich there would there was a real structural similarity there I know it was. I thought it was phenomenal, and I mean, the sound of Nigel's hurdy gurdy to this day. I just think he's just stunning, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just has that kind of quality. But then, obviously, the the nineties, which is um, yes, Thatcher goes, doesn't she? And then it all changes, and and you suddenly are back, sort of with with sort of quite a shiny new project, but also working, you know, on the in the Peter Gabriel sort of uh, kind of real world sound studios. Well, we had Roots and Wings out. I had Roots and Wings out in '91, and that was independent distribution. And we're just getting a little bit fed up of the way that system worked. Um, I think I had too many people go bankrupt on us just as they were about to pay royalties and then rock up and start operating again the next day without the debts. Yes. And, um, and we said, oh, we need something. Steve and I said, well, we need something different. Um, because uh, you know, we we need to operate in a different way, and we kind of we went on holidays in Scotland and, and kind of took a took a sort of mental clifftop view of the whole situation and said, "Real world," for two reasons. One is they're the best quality world music label, and the second reason is that they've got loads of Africans and loads of male artists. They need someone that's Asian and female. Yes. There you go. Good, so, good, good call. <laughs> uh, and also, I decided that it was time I learned to play live. I was a very shy studio artist. Yes. That introvert thing again. Um, and I thought, well, because their sister company is um, Womad, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, ta- I'll write an album with live material. Because, you know, Roots and Wings, there were like, I don't know, how many tracks of vocal on one, which is the first track? I think something like. 20. I couldn't go on stage and so they were all me. I couldn't go on stage and do that without having a big tape recorder and kind of pressing it. It would have been ridiculous. It would have taken away the magic, wouldn't it? I think it really, really would. Um, <laughs> because I hadn't played live for so long, you know, because remember I had this hit in 82 and coming up to 92, I've never ever done concerts except that one very early monsoon one in 81. The rumour went round that I couldn't actually sing. Right. That's why I was a studio artist. So going on stage and pressing a button and 20 voices coming up and then me singing along really wouldn't have cut it. So I went to completely the opposite extreme. I said, right, if I'm going to learn about live music, I'm going to do it without a safety net. I'm not going to have a band. 
Um, I'm going to be on stage alone with maybe an occasional drone, and I'm going to have to carry the whole thing myself. Yes. And the only way for me to... I, I wanted to put some kind of protective structure around myself because I just didn't know how... Um, I didn't know how backstage worked for musicians. Um, Steve was primarily a writer. Though he'd done some performing very early on, on in the 60s in his career. Um, but I had... So I had recording musicians around me. I didn't really have great live musicians around me. And I thought, well, WOMAD will kind of provide a, a protective base. So I went and recorded Weaving My Ancestors' Voices, which was out in 92 and on Real World, which was the album of the live stuff. And um, did my first summer with WOMAD in 92. Yes. And those, those, to be honest, I wasn't there, but I have seen the clips. That is quite transcendental, <laughs> isn't it? It does. <laughs> I don't think you've got a choice. If you've got loads of drones going on, it does kind of lull people into a certain yes. space. Do you mind if we pause for a second? I just need to go and get some water. My, my throat is giving me a bit Oh, of God, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, yes, that's fine. <clears throat> my God, that's me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. Well, I've got some straps as well. I can keep them there. Yes. Yes. So, <clears throat> thanks. Yeah. So. Yeah, because there was the Real World label. I don't know if it was an Icelandic singer on, on that label as well, called Maureen. Maureen. Yes, yeah. that was... Because actually, at that time, you know, the, the you know like you mentioned, the 80s was kind of... Uh, you know, there'd been stuff in the 60s, things got slightly buried in the 70s, and then the, and then a lot of those seeds started to be planted in the 80s, that in the 90s, the Real World, you know, WOMAD, that label and the sort of access to being able to pick this up was a lot easier. And I suppose CDs were starting to appear as well, though they were twelve ninety nine, which was so expensive. But, um, you know, I just yeah, remember... It was like there was, there was Triple Earth and there were, there were you know, um, <clears throat> the David uh, Byrne... Um, yes, Bop, something Bop, wasn't it? Yeah, there were lots. There were lots of imprints. Yeah, and there was Actually, a... one of the finest compliments that I've ever received is that the guy uh, who Jan Scott, who founded Triple Earth, said he first heard Ever So Lonely the single when he was buying cat food in a corner shop, and it came on the radio, and he said he couldn't stop listening to it, so he went round the shop <laughs> just picking things up. <laughs> <laughs> And that was, you know, for him, that was the proof that there was a market out there for world music. Yes. And absolutely. I think it probably was for a lot of those labels that came through and were being formed around 87. Yeah. I think at that stage as well, labels were very, you know, you started to just buy anything on a label. There was like 4AD records. Yeah. You know, there was obviously yeah. things like Trojan, Green Sleeves. 
you know, creation records. I mean, there was a kind of, you know, the people who were running it were obviously the fans and they were just signing people they wanted to basically see and hear. So you kind of got that and then you suddenly went, oh, actually something's a bit weird. This last album that's been on this label isn't quite what I expected. And it's like, yeah, because the guy's left. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, the, that's the reason. So then, yeah, yeah I mean... Then sort of like through, throughout the 90s and then sort of obviously you started working with Simon much later, didn't you, with the Imagined Village. So with those sort of projects that come up, I mean, there's a lot happens after, you know, before that. I mean, with the solo work, were you sort of pleased with the the uh, Ancestors Weaving album? You know, was that something that you thought, oh, that's absolutely, we've already got something here? For me, um, it, it, I mean, it's always the ultimate test. Can a singer go out on stage in a, in a hugely technological age and carry an audience for 90 minutes just on their voice? Can they carry them for 45 minutes on a very close listen? What we did with that album was, um, which I think had never been done before. You see, when you go into the studio, you lay things down, you lay tracks down into a certain order. You start with your drums and your bass guitar, and then you, you work your way up up the spectrum really and what technically what usually happens is that you spend all your time doing that and then you've got like three hours to do the vocal and it's the same thing happens in the mix you you, do, you mix the vocal last because you get the bedrock of the track right and you spend hardly any time on it which is madness because the vocal is what people are listening to and we decided to reverse that if you have just a voice or just a voice and drone the drones were already pre-mixed we didn't have to do anything to them for the album um we'd had them a long long time um you could spend up to 18 hours mixing a solo voice line and that album technically set i know set a new technical standard in the industry for the treatment of voice because people just had never heard every single line and phrase and harmonic just chased with effects in so subtle a way yeah. so yeah i was really pleased with it from that point of view i was pleased with it for, for for doing everything that i wanted it to do for producing a fusion within a single vocal line because if you think about monsoon there's this evolution in fact you know there's a solo voice version of ever so only on weaving manchester's voices and it shows you how much i've how far I've come between 82 and 92 because Monsoon, the fusion, I mean, it was a pop vocal and um, it was completely Western in that sense. And then you had all these Indian instruments and, and crash beats and all that. The fusion was in the instrumentation. By 92, I'm making that crossover within my voice and not layered voice within a single line. And that for me was an ultimate um, technical achievement. Yes. So. Yeah, I really was proud of that. So, like, two things. I mean, obviously, this is kind of quite extraordinary pushing your vocal to that point. But also the other thing everyone always has issues with, and sometimes it's good and bad, you know, it kind of varies, is having a producer that kind of can capture what you're trying to do. So how did you, you know, with those two things, kind of developing your voice and sort of obviously learning how to use it as well as train it and then get somebody who, who was sensitive and knew what you were trying to do to capture to capture that sound and vibe? Well, that was simple. I stuck with the same person. I mean, Steve Coe, who, who, who co-produced and wrote the material for, for Monsoon, became my co-writer um, along with Martin Smith on my first four solo albums. And then when I uh, went on sabbatical, I continued writing with, with, with Steve Coe. 
and he he produced all that as well. So by that by the time of Weaving My Ancestors' Voices, he knew my voice intimately well. He he'd hear me warming up and singing for like three or four hours a day. He knew exactly why all those lines were constructed the way they were. Um, so he had a chance to really immerse himself in the vocal journey in a way that a, a producer who just comes in to produce a band, however well they know the material, they don't know it that well. They haven't helped to write it. Yes. They haven't helped to write it on the only voice on which it will ever be sung. So, um, and also, I mean, I used to tease him terribly because Ever So Lonely is written, it's in the key of C, which means those high Ever So Lonely's are... Uh, an octave above middle C and then the F above that. That phrase starts on the F above that. Well, that happens to be the place, the physical place in every female voice where there's a break. And any accomplished composer for voice never, ever, ever starts a phrase on that note. And he's got me singing that, like, how many times in the end choruses at the end of Ever So Lonely? So I gave him a terrible time about that. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years, <laughs> and you know, by that time he'd learned. Yes. Did you um just just briefly? Did you in, enjoy the work of Millie Ripperton, who had one of those kind of vocals, which was oh, called... what a voice! I mean, the thing is, I really struggled with Evelyn and that was one reason why we didn't play live because everyone would have expected me to do it. Yes. Uh, and it would have killed me. Uh, I have a naturally low voice. So that top note was absolutely there because Steve wrote that song before he'd met me. He had that song as part of the Monsoon EP whilst he was looking for this singer. Yes. So, I mean, Minnie Ripperton would have killed him so only. She'd have been great. It wouldn't have been a strain for her. I mean, she, she'd sing an octave above that. No trouble at all. But that wasn't me. That was kind of a song that I was sort of pushed into in terms of vocal range. Yes, absolutely. And then... And then you sort of, I mean, obviously there's quite a lot happens, but then you worked with Simon on um, on a couple of tracks with Imagine Village. So was that a project that you enjoyed? Because obviously he was kind of putting together this quite colossal thing, project, mm. wasn't it, with a million other people, which is quite ambitious. Um, I'd been a big seller on Real World for the 90s and then Afrocelts came along and were an even bigger seller. Um, and by that time, I'd started to develop voice problems. And I, so I didn't do a lot. And then there was a time when I couldn't have. I mean, I couldn't. There was a time when I had trouble pitching and I, I couldn't have. But I, I was slowly, slowly rehabilitating my voice. And then I decided to do some concerts in 2006, 2007. And that's when um, Simon was um, putting all the... Uh, Imagine Village stuff together, and so he they sort of grabbed me for that. And that was I, I, that's how I got involved. I've forgotten the question. I'm yes, sorry. no. So what was you know because that's um, to be honest, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, really. So your your um, issue with your voice, what started to happen, and when did you start to notice something going slightly wrong? I started to notice in uh, November, December of '92, after that first season with Womad. And I, it took, I think, about a decade and a half for me to be properly diagnosed, unfortunately, because voices are, 
if you're an opera singer, you go to an ENT to have your voice checked anyway. And the thing is that then they get a sense of what it should look like when it's functioning well. Well, I had never had any problems. I was a pop singer. I never went to an ENT. I didn't even know how to find a specialist voice ENT. And um, by the time I went to one, they didn't know what my voice box should look like. Right. Um, because they, they didn't have anything to compare it to. And so it took me a long time to be diagnosed. But basically, I was in a car crash and I had a detached retina as a result. And I nearly lost my sight. And I had an emergency operation. Um, the trouble is that when they intubated me, they nicked one of my vocal cords going down. Which was fine. I mean, it healed, but the trouble was it healed with scar tissue. And although it's only the size of a pinhead, what it means is that one of my vocal cords is stretchier than the other. So the side that's stretchier, all the musculature has to overstretch in order to make up for the side that isn't stretchy enough. Yes. It gives me a continual twist in my larynx and a, a strain in my throat. So that was why I was having so much problem. But we didn't know why. We didn't know what was causing it because it didn't come on immediately after the operation. What we now know is the scar tissue took a couple of months to build up and it was only after it was built up. I mean, presumably it, it was just flapping loose and my vocal cords were still working yes. that, with that nick in them. But when it healed over was when all the trouble started. Oh, dearie me. Christ yeah, I, that's, that, I still have that today. There's no cure for that. Yes, blimey. Uh, and then the trouble was that I kept singing on that voice. I gave live performances in the mid-noughties. I did the Imagine Village stuff and all that. And I'd spent so many years in pain so that I could sing because I could still make the noise at that point. Um, although I didn't have the stamina to do the kind of exploratory writing that I'd done for Weaving Ancestors' Voices in the same Kiss. Um, but I spent so much time in pain, the neurologist, uh, I developed burning mouth syndrome. And, the, and I saw a neurologist about that. He said, your system's primed for pain. That's what it's used to. You've spent 15 years with the voice in pain, using it yes. in a really athletic way. And now your body, your nervous system is responding by giving you more pain. Blimey, that's a hell of it. So did you have a, a kind of, God, that was a bit of an existential moment, wasn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, for a singer to lose her voice is extremely traumatic. It's it's uh, it's like a destruction of your central identity. Yes. I mean, God. I mean, you... Jeezy, crazy. The only other person I remember having such problems, which is completely different, was um, was when Jim Steinman... It was Meat Life, wasn't it? He lost his voice when they were trying to record an album, and he, it was like they'd go into the studio and go, right, here we go, and it's like, oh, God, it's not going to happen, is it? You know, and it was like, you know... Things kind of, yeah, people getting very upset and smashing the place apart. So, yeah, that must have been just devastating. Yeah, it was, because I think when you're a singer, particularly if you're a, if you're a vocational singer, if it's the thing, I mean, you think of me in those late 70s, um, listening to those disco and soul records, uh, emulating them. It was, it, was, it was really what I wanted to be. And uh, for me, suddenly not to be able to have it, was was it was really disorientating and it took me I don't know, it took me more than a decade really to come to terms with the fact that I was not able to do what I had been able to do and that I would probably have to stop at some point. Yes. 
And that's it. You've said that's that's your Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to... In 2009, I developed burning mouth syndrome. Um, it was probably partly hom- hom- hormonal as well because I became perimenopausal. And uh, burning mouth syndrome is commoner in women and associated with menopause. So I had the sort of being primed for pain and then I had the, the menopausal trigger. And then <clears throat> I developed burning mouth syndrome. And the thing was that... In physical terms, I probably could have still sung to the same standard that I'd been able to sing in the noughties, but the pain was just so much worse because I now had these two pains going on. Yes. But I just, it was just too painful even to warm up. Bloody hell, bloody hell. I do feel very guilty about it because, you know, I've got this equivalent of a, okay, slightly injured Stradivarius sitting in my neck it's kind of like I've left it in an understairs cupboard to rot because I, I, I'm not using it so I can't, you know, all its tone has gone because I can't use it, like it's too painful to use it Yes. and the killer for me was that speaking became painful as well um, because the burning mouth is triggered by talking as well as singing um, as is the twist in my larynx actually but that didn't I used to have sort of two or three hours of pain-free voice usage time, whereas burning mouth kicks in 10 minutes after I start speaking. So um, it wasn't just an adjustment to not singing. It was also an adjustment to an extremely austere uh, kind of uh, hermit existence where, I mean, I've put time aside now to talk to you for however long we're going to talk today. But it meant being silent for two or three days before. Mm-hmm. And I put it in my diary that I'll be silent for two or three days after so that I have that recovery time. Yes. But that's how my life has to be planned. So I think people people probably hear me on the radio occasionally or doing a talk on YouTube and think, well, she's fine. She's talking. She sounds fine. But actually, it's not, it's not like that. It's one of those horrible invisible disabilities Yes. Well, also that 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 coupled with the menopause, which is again something that is a mo- from from what I've heard and and sort of kind of experienced indirectly, is kind of emotionally. You know, suddenly people really successful, fantastic, everything's going well. So suddenly, I can't do this anymore, and it's like it's really confusing. It's like, but you've been doing it for decades. You know, this is your kind of work. This is you know, you've 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 developed this amazing career and suddenly you've completely lost it. And it's like, and it's really yeah, frightening. Caitlin Moran had a, wrote this brilliant article recently about this. And uh, this analogy would never have occurred to me, but she said, basically, estrogen is a drug and you get put on it when you're 13 and it runs right through your life and it, 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 it makes you behave and feel in certain ways. It's a very... You know, it's a mood enhancer. It ma- it makes you sort of generous and cuddly, and I sound like I'm describing E now, don't I? But you know, <laughs> uh, well, you know, estrogen ecstasy. Maybe they're not that far apart. It stimulates oxytocin and all that sort of stuff. And then when you hit perimenopause, suddenly your dealer's gone, and you're yes. coming down off this massive three-decade-long high. 
<laughs> of estrogen. And, and you're just really not as tolerant anymore. This is true. This is true. I went to see Menopause the Musical. I was, uh-huh. I was taken. I was like, you need to see this, David. You'll learn lots more. It was very educational and quite amusing. So, yeah, no, it was like, Jesus, that is hard, isn't it? I mean, we all have struggles, but everyone's struggle. Everyone has a story. But interestingly, as I mentioned earlier, my new age moments, um, self-help, you you sort of turned to writing, haven't you? Which was um, one of those things that we've all got our little shelf of self-help books, which is always very important. And, uh, yes, you've been sort of the the, the famous one, which we all love because of Marie Kondo. Banish Clutter Forever, mm-hmm. which is a good one. And then the create, and there was one, a lot of friends got into the artist's way. And you've done another one, which is to do with kind of creating, uh, developing your creative kind of uh, journey. Um, so as you can talk and sing, you know, was, was this kind of another way that you just felt like, thank God, I've got another avenue that I can put my energy into? Well, I think you have that moment that everybody does when something, when a, a leg that they've stood on and relied on, and that they've put their weight on for so long is knocked away. You have that sort of floundering about moment. Um, and I looked around and thought, well, you know, what are my basic inclinations? What else do I do? Which for a musician who'd been so 24-7 was quite, I don't know if I do anything else really. But I had been writing a, a, a journal for, I don't know, 15 years at that point. And I think, you know, they say about your 10,000 hours, if you put 10,000... Oh, yes, Malcolm Gladwell, yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that helped. And then, so I kind of uh, took a couple of creative writing courses and wrote Banished Clutter Forever pretty quickly, actually. And because I had this system where I didn't... Basically, I didn't tidy up. I had a system where I didn't need to tidy up. And friends would call around without any notice and walk into a completely tidy house and... You know, I wasn't stuffing things behind cushions and throwing drapes over things, and they wanted to know how I did it. So that's where that came from. Yes. Organising your creative career is less artist's way, but more about um, uh, creative career infrastructure. Because I, I felt that unless you have a mentor who tell you who tells you how things work when you're when you're entering a creative career, and lots of kids like. You know, I was fortunate I had people to learn from, but a kid, an average kid from the inner city has kind of got to go and make all the same mistakes. And um, I thought, well, I don't want all this, um, you know, I don't want 30 years of experience to go to waste. So I wrote a book about, ostensibly about organising your career as an artist, but it's actually about which bits of the career infrastructure are essential to set up and why and how you should approach them. So it goes right from organising your studio through to, you know, making sure that your legacy management is right so that when you die, because your copyrights are going to live for 70 years after your death, how you manage that and how you store things and how you um, yes. make sure that, that it's all going to be, you know, because you, you've got to be famous the week of your death. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all those albums. Yes, <laughs> I know, this is true. I mean, he was the ultimate organised artist, really. Who was that? <coughs> Bowie. Oh yes, well, yes, I know. <laughs> he was he was something else, wasn't he, dear old David? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because because obviously it's it's people like yourself who've got that experience and just because often you know I have to say one of my 
questions I always ask is, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? And obviously you'd probably say, oh, this is what I'd say, here's, here's your book, just read this, kid. Because it's kind of, it's those things, isn't it? What, you, you know, what you're signing, who you're working with, you know, just attitudes as well. Because a lot of people say, I wish I just enjoyed it more when I was doing that creative moment, which was the kind of like, wow, it's all happening you know, practice more, don't take so many drugs, don't drink so much. You know, it's all those very basic things. That I suppose everyone feels a bit boring when they say it, but it is quite important, really, isn't it? I mean, and and to be honest, you know, I sort of used to love my self-help weekends. So I sort of went to see various people, including the great Tony Robbins. And, you know, he was often talking about the journal and mentors and just having somebody that you can just kind of bounce off. And I guess that's where you, you kind of realise, oh, look, I could be really good for the, you know, could I'll be good for somebody, you know, who's who's taken those journey, that journey, really. Well, I just didn't want to see people who coming from a difficult background for the arts, because let's face it, if you come from a family where lots of people are doctors or lots of people are engineers or lots of people are politicians, you kind of understand the work culture implicitly. And for kids who are talented but don't come from an arts background, I really didn't want them to have to trip up and make all the mistakes that, that I did. And then I was doing some um, very short talks on uh, as a kind of sort of informal book tour, and I realised that actually there was a, a need for a, for a specialist coach for... I mean, there are a few of us around, but not that many. Specialist, um, sort of life coachy type, mentor type service for people who are seriously professional creative artists and uh, so now I coach people all over the world via Skype and I type into the IM box and they talk yes this is marvellous and so so I mean God you kind of answered that question haven't you what you'd say to your 18 year old self what would you what if you could have said something to yourself when you were 18 probably 16 in your case what would it be don't assume that marvellous voice is going to last forever. Because essentially I only had it for 11 years. Yes. Cheesy crazy. That is quite something, isn't it? I know. But, uh, gee, there's not much you can say. It's just like, that's that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? Mm. It's just so. Uh, but, um, yeah. Well, look... It's been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview, by the way. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> yes. And also, I think your website is fantastic. I, you know, I've been looking at the, uh, the different areas and different bits. And I do, you know, like I said, I've obviously, as we all do with age, and we all have our health issues and problems as well. So um, it's all a bit sort of uh, humbling, really, isn't it? So um, it's great, you know, to see, you know, people still sort of uh, all trying to do things which is both positive and creative, actually. Mm. So um, that's the main thing. But yes, well, thank you ever so much. And thank you ever so much for all the amazing music as well that you've, you know, made over the decades. And, uh, you know, luckily you have, it's still mostly out there, isn't it? So um, Yeah, I think that's, the, that's the, the, the nice thing about being a shy introvert, you know, that most of it went on to record rather than me spending years touring and not actually putting anything down on tape. So that is fortunate. Yes. Well, look. Okay. Well, look. That's fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much again. And um, yes, I can always send you a link to the interview as well on the I'd love that. Yeah. podcast. Yeah. But that would be fantastic. Well, look. Thank you. Okay. Take care Very of yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Indeed. 
how to end a conversation. I know, I am so smooth. Anyway, that is the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with Sheila Chandra, one-time member of Monsoon, also has played with Ancient Beatbox, members of Blozabella, who we love, and also Imagine Village, who we also love. Anyway, this has been David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these have been podcasts, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week and uh, stay safe. We'll have more, more quality chat very soon. Bye.